This reading is taken from A Christian on the Mount, written by Thomas Watson. Subjects of Meditation Section 4 Meditate upon sin Number 1. Meditate on the guilt of sin. We are in Adam as a common head or root, and he sinning, we became guilty. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sin, by his treason our blood is tainted. This guilt brings shame with it as its twin. Romans chapter 6, verse 21. Number two, meditate upon the filth of sin. Not only is the guilt of Adam's sin imputed, but the poison of his nature is disseminated to us. Our virgin nature is defiled. If the heart is spotted, how then can the actions be pure? If the water in the well is foul, it cannot be clean in the bucket. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We are all as an unclean thing. We are like a patient under the physician's care, who has no sound part in him. His head is bruised, his liver is swelled, his lungs are gasping, his blood is infected, his feet are gangrened. Thus is it with us before saving grace comes. In the mind there is darkness, in the memory there is slipperiness, in the heart there is hardness, in the will there is stubbornness. You are sick from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds, without any ointments or bandages. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 6. A sinner, befilthied with sin, is no better than a devil in man's shape. And which is sadly to be laid to heart is the adherency of this sin. Sin is natural to us. The apostle calls it the sin that so easily ensnares us. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Sin is not easily cast off. A man may as well shake off the skin of his body as the sin of his soul. There is no shaking off this viper until death. Oh, often meditate on the contagion of sin. How strong is that poison, a drop whereof is able to poison a whole sea. How venomous and malignant was that apple, a taste of which poisoned all mankind. Meditate sadly on this. Meditation on sin would make the plumes of pride fall off. If our knowledge makes us proud, that is sin enough to make us humble. The best saint alive who is taken out of the grave of sin, yet has the smell of the grave clothes still upon him. Number three, meditate upon the curse of sin. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. This curse is like a deadly canker upon fruit, which keeps it from thriving. Sin is not only a defiling thing, but a damning thing. It is not only a spot in the face, but a stab at the heart. Sin betrays us into the devil's hands, who writes all his laws in blood. Sin binds us over to the wrath of God. What then are all our earthly enjoyments, with the sword of divine vengeance hanging over our head? Sin brings forth the scroll written with curses, against a sinner, Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5. And it is a flying scroll. It comes swiftly if mercy does not stop it. You are cursed with a curse, Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Thus, it is until the head of this curse is cut off by Christ. Oh, meditate upon the curse due to sin. Number one, meditation on this curse would make us afraid of retaining sin. 
when Micah had stolen his mother's money and heard her curse him. He dared not keep it any longer, but restored it, Judges 17.2. He was afraid of his mother's curse. What then is God's curse? Number two, meditation on this curse would make us afraid of entertaining sin. We would not willingly entertain one in our house who had a deadly plague. Sin brings along with it the plague of God's curse, which cleaves to the sinner. Meditation on this would make us fly from sin. While we sit under the shadow of this bramble of sin, fire will come out of the bramble eternally to devour us. Judges chapter 9, verse 15. Section 5. Meditate upon the vanity of the creature. When you have sifted out the finest flour that the creature can give, you will find something either to dissatisfy or to nauseate. The best wine has its froth, the sweetest rose has its prickles, and the purest comforts have their dregs. The creatures cannot be said to be full unless we say that it is full of vanity, as a sail may be filled with wind. Job 20.22 At the height of his success, distress will come to him. The full weight of misery will crush him. Those who think to find happiness here on earth are like Apollo, who embraced a tree instead of the lovely Daphne. Meditate on this vanity of the creature. The world is like a broken looking glass, which shows a false beauty. Number one, meditation on worldly vanity would be like the digging about the roots of a tree to loosen it from the earth. It would much loosen our hearts from the world and be an excellent preservation against the love of earthly things. Let a Christian think thus with himself, Why am I so serious about such worthless vanity? If the whole earth were changed into a globe of gold, it could not fill my heart. Number two, meditation on the creature's vanity would make us look after more solid comforts. The favor of God, the blood of Christ, the influences of the Spirit. When I see that the life which I fetch from the cistern is vain, I will go the more to the ocean. In Christ there is an inexhaustible treasury. When a man finds the bow begin to break, he lets go of the bow and catches hold of the trunk of the tree. Just so, when we find the creature to be but a rotten bow, then by faith we shall catch hold of Christ, the tree of life. Revelation 2.7 The creature is but a shaking reed. God is the immovable rock of ages. Section 6. Meditate on the excellency of grace. Number 1. Grace is precious in itself. 2 Peter 1.1, Precious Faith. 1. Grace is precious in its original. It comes from above, James 3.17. 2. Grace is precious in its nature. It is the seed of God, 1 John 3.9. Grace is the spiritual embroidery of the soul. It is the very signature and engraving of the Holy Spirit. Grace does not lose its color. It is such a commodity that the longer we keep it, the better it is. It changes into glory. Number two, as grace is precious in itself, so it makes us precious to God. As a rich diamond adorns the one who wears it. Isaiah 43, 4. Since you were precious in my sight, the saints who are invested with grace are God's jewels. Malachi three seventeen. Though sullied with reproach, though besmeared with blood, yet jewels... All the world besides is but chaff. These are the jewels, 
and heaven is the golden cabinet where they shall be locked up safe. A gracious man is the glory of the age he lives in. So illustrious in God's eye is a soul bespangled with grace that he does not think the world worthy of him. Hebrews 11.38, of whom the world was not worthy. Therefore, God calls his people home so fast because they are too good to live in this world. Proverbs 2.26, the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor. Grace is the best blessing. It has a transcendency above all other things. There are two things which sparkle much in our eyes, but grace infinitely outshines both. Number one, gold. The sun does not shine so much in our eyes as gold. It is the mirror of beauty. Money answers all things, Ecclesiastes 10.19. But grace weighs heavier than gold. Gold draws the heart from God. Grace draws the heart to God. Gold does but enrich the mortal part. Grace the angelic part. Gold perishes, 1 Peter 1.7. Grace perseveres. The rose, the fuller it is blown, the sooner it sheds, is an emblem of all things besides grace. Two gifts. These are nature's pride. Gifts and abilities, like Rachel, are fair to look upon, but grace excels. I'd rather be holy than eloquent. An heart full of grace is better than a head full of notions. Gifts commend no man to God. It is not the skin of the apple we esteem, though of vermilion color, but the fruit. We judge not the better of a horse for its trappings and ornaments unless he is good metal. What are the most glorious abilities if there is not the metal of grace in the heart? Gifts may be bestowed upon one for the good of others, as the nurse's breasts are given her for the child, but grace is bestowed for a man's own eternal advantage. God may send away reprobates with gifts, as Abraham gave the sons of the concubines some gifts, Genesis 25.6, but he entails the inheritance only upon grace. Oh, often meditate upon the excellency of grace. Number one, the musing on the beauty of grace would make us fall in love with it. He who meditates on the worth of a diamond grows in love with it. Damascan calls the graces of the Spirit the very characters and impressions of the divine nature. Grace is that flower of delight which, like the vine in the parable, Judges 9.13, cheers the heart of God and man. Number two, meditation on the excellency of grace would make us earnest in the pursuit after it. We dig for gold in the mine. We sweat for it in the furnace. Did we meditate on the worth of grace, we would dig in the mine of ordinances for it. What sweating and wrestling in prayer would we have? We would put on a modest boldness and not take a denial. What will you give me, says Abraham, seeing I go childless? Genesis 15.2 So would the soul say, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go graceless? Who will give me to drink of the water of the well of life? Number three, meditation on the excellency of grace would make us endeavor to be instrumental to convey grace to others. Is grace so transcendently precious, and have I a child who lacks grace? Oh, that I might be the means to convey this treasure into his soul. I have read of a rich Florentine, who being about to die, called all his sons together, and used these words to them, 
It much rejoices me now upon my deathbed that I shall leave you all wealthy. But a parent's ambition should be rather to convey sanctity that he may say, Oh, my children, it rejoices me that I shall leave you gracious. It comforts me that before I die, I shall see Jesus Christ live in you. Section 7. Meditate upon your spiritual state. Enter into a serious meditation on the state of your souls. While you're meditating on other things, do not forget yourselves. The great work lies at home. It was Solomon's advice, know the state of your flock, Proverbs 27:23. Much more, know the state of your soul. For lack of this meditation, men are like travelers, skilled in other countries, but ignorant of their own. So they know other things, but know not how it goes with their own soul, whether they are in a good state or bad. There are few who by holy meditation enter within themselves. There are two reasons why so few meditate upon the state of their souls. Number one, self-guiltiness. Men are reluctant to look into their hearts by meditation, lest they should find that which would trouble them. The cup is in their sack. Most are herein like tradesmen, who being ready to sink in their estates, are reluctant to look into their account books, lest they should find their estate low. But had you not better enter into your heart by meditation than God should in sad manner enter into judgment with you? Number two, presumption. Men hope all is well. Men will not take their land upon trust, but will have it surveyed. Yet they will take their spiritual estate upon trust without any surveying. They are confident their case is good, Proverbs fourteen sixteen. They presume that it is a thing not to be disputed on. And this confidence is but conceit. The foolish virgins, though they had no oil in their lamps, yet how confident were they? They came knocking. They doubted not of admittance. Just so many do not possess salvation, but remain secure. They presume all is well, never seriously meditating whether they have oil or not. O oh, Christian, meditate about your soul. See how the case stands between God and you. Do as merchants cast upon your estate that you may see what you are worth. See if you are rich towards God, Luke twelve twenty one. Meditate about three things. Number one, about your debts. See if your debts are paid or not, that is, your sins pardoned. See if there be no arrears, no sin in your soul unrepented of. Meditate about your will. See if your will is made yet. Have you resigned up all the interest in yourself? Have you given up your love to God? Have you given up your will? This is to make your will. Meditate about your will. Make your spiritual will in the time of health. If you put off the making of your will until death, it may be invalid. Perhaps God will not accept your soul then. Meditate, number three, about your evidences. These evidences are the graces of the Spirit. See whether you have any evidences. What desires have you after Christ? What faith? See whether there are any flaws in your evidences. Are your desires true? Do you as well desire heavenly principles as heavenly privileges? Oh, meditate seriously upon your evidences. To sift our hearts thus by meditation is very necessary. If we find our estate is not sound, the mistake is discovered and the danger can be prevented. If our spiritual estate is sound, we shall have the comfort of it. 
What gladness was it to Hezekiah when he could say, Remember now, O Lord, how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in your sight. Isaiah chapter 38 verse 3. So what unspeakable comfort will it be when a Christian upon a serious meditation and review of his spiritual condition can say, I have something to show for heaven. I know I have passed from death to life. 1 John 3.14 And as a holy man once said, I am Christ, and the devil has nothing to do with me. Section 8 Meditate upon the small number of those who shall be saved. The eighth subject of meditation is the small number that shall be saved. But few are chosen, Matthew 20, verse 16. Among the millions in Rome, there are but few senators, and among the swarms of people in the world, there are but few believers. One said all the names of the good emperors might be engraved in a little ring. There are not many names in the book of life. We read of four kinds of ground in the parable and but one good ground. Matthew 13. How few in the world know Christ. How few that believe in Him. Who has believed our report? Isaiah 53.1. How few bow to Christ's scepter. The heathen idolaters and Mahometans possess almost all Asia, Africa, America. In many parts of the world, the devil is worshipped as among the Parthians and Pilipians. Satan takes up most climates and hearts. How many formalists are in the world? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Having a form of godliness. Formalists are like wool, which receives a slight tincture, not a deep dye, whose religion is a paint, not an engraving, which a storm of persecution will wash off. These look like Christ's doves, but are the serpent's brood. They hate God's image, like the panther that hates the picture of a man. Oh, often meditate on the small number of those who shall be saved. Number one, meditation on this would keep us from marching along with the multitude. You shall not follow a multitude, Exodus 23, 2. The multitude usually goes wrong. Most men walk after the course of this world, Ephesians 2, 2. That is, the lust of their hearts and the fashions of the times. They march after the prince of the air. Meditation on this would make us turn out of the common road. Number two, meditation on the fewness of those who shall be saved would make us walk tremblingly. Few find the way, and when they have found it, few walk in the way. The thoughts of this would work holy fear, Hebrews 4.1, not a despairing fear, but a jealous and cautious fear. This reverential fear the eminent saints of God have had Augustine says of himself, he knocked at heaven's gates with a trembling hand. This fear is joined with hope. Psalm 147.1 The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. A child of God fears because the gate is straight, but hopes because the gate is open. Number three, meditation on the fewness of those who shall be saved would be a whetstone to holy industry. It would put us upon working out our salvation. If there are so few that shall be crowned, it would make us the swifter in the race. This meditation would be an alarm to sleepy Christians. Section 9. Meditate upon final apostasy. Think what a sad thing it is to begin a religion, to build and not be able to finish. 
Joash was good while his uncle Jehoiada lived. But after he died, Joash grew wicked. All his religion was buried in his uncle's grave. We live in the fall of the leaf. How many are fallen to damnable heresies? Second Peter chapter 2 verse 1. Meditate seriously on that scripture, Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. A man may be enlightened, and that from a double lamp, the Word and Spirit, but these beams, though they are irradiating, yet not penetrating, it is possible he may have a taste of the heavenly gift. He may taste, but not be nourished by it. This taste may not only illuminate, but refresh. It may carry some sweetness in it. There may be a kind of delight in spiritual things. Thus far a man may go and yet fall away finally. Now this will be very sad. It being such a God-affronting and Christ-reproaching sin. Know therefore it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord. Jeremiah 2.19 Meditate upon final relapses. Meditation on this would make us earnest in prayer to God. For soundness of heart, make my heart sound in your statutes. Psalm 119.80 Lord, let me not be an almost Christian. Work a thorough work of grace upon me, though I am not washed perfectly. Let me be washed thoroughly. Psalm 51.2 That which begins in hypocrisy ends in apostasy. Number two, meditation on hypocrites final falling away would make us earnest in prayer for perseverance. Hold up my goings in your paths that my footsteps slip not. Psalm 17.5 Lord, hold me up that I may hold out. You have set the crown at the end of the race. Let me run the race that I may wear the crown. It was Beza's prayer. Let it be ours. Lord, perfect what you have begun in me, that I may not suffer shipwreck when I am almost at heaven. Section 12. Meditate upon death. We say we must all die, but how rare it is that anyone meditates seriously upon death. Number one, meditate on the certainty of death. It is appointed for all once to die. Hebrews 9.27 Death is an inviolable reality. Number two, meditate upon the proximity of death. It is near to us. We are almost setting our feet upon the dark entry of death. The poet's painted time with wings. It flies and carries us upon its wings. The race is short between the cradle and the grave. The sentence of death is already passed. Genesis 3.19 To dust you shall return, so that our life is but a short reprieve from death which is granted to a condemned man. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Psalm 39.5 Nay, our life is less than nothing. Reckon with eternity. Number three. Meditate upon the uncertainty of time. We have no lease, but may be turned out the next hour. There are so many casualties that it is a wonder if life be not cut off by untimely death. 
How soon may God seal us a lease of ejectment? Our grave may be dug before night. Today we may lie upon a pillow of down. Tomorrow we may be laying upon a pillow of dust. Today the sermon bell tolls. Tomorrow our death bell may toll. Number four, think seriously that to die is to be but once done, and after death our state is eternally fixed. If you die in your impenitency, there is no repenting in the grave. If you leave your work at death half done, there is no finishing it in the grave. Ecclesiastes 9.10 There is no work, nor device, nor wisdom in the grave where you go. If a garrison surrenders at the first summons, there is mercy. But if it battles until it is stormed and captured, there is no mercy then. Now it is a day of grace, and God holds forth the white flag of mercy to the penitent. If we battle with God until he storms us by death, there is no mercy. There is nothing to be done for our souls after death. Oh, meditate upon death. It is reported of Zeleucus that the first piece of household stuff he brought to Babylon was a tombstone. Think often of your tombstone. Meditation on death would work these admirable effects. Number one, meditation on death would pull down the plumes of pride. You are but animated dust. Shall dust and ashes be proud? Your body will be turned into grass and shall shortly be mown down. Number two, meditation upon death would be a means to give a death wound to sin. No stronger antidote against sin, says Augustine, than the frequent meditation on death. Am I now sinning and tomorrow I may be dying? What if death should take me doing the devil's work? Would it not send me to him to receive double pay? Carry the thoughts of death as a book always about you. And when sin tempts, pull out this book and read in it, and you shall see sin will vanish. We should look upon sin in two looking glasses, the glass of Christ's blood and the glass of death. Meditation on death would be a bridle for intemperance. Shall I pamper that body which must lie down in the house of rottenness? Our Savior at the feast breaks forth into mention of his burial, Matthew 26. Feeding upon the thoughts of death would be an excellent preservation against gluttony. Number four, meditation on death would make us use time better and crowd up much work in a little space. Many meet in taverns to trifle away time. The apostle bids us redeem time, redeeming the time. Our lives should be like jewels, though little in bulk, yet great in worth. Some die young, yet with gray hairs upon them. We must be like the grass of the field, useful, not like the grass of the housetop, which withers before it is grown up. To live and not be serviceable is not life, but wasting of life. Number five, meditation on death would spur us on in the pursuit after holiness. Death is the great plunderer. It will shortly plunder us of all our outward comforts. Our feathers of beauty and honor must be laid in the dust, but death cannot plunder us of our graces. The commonwealth of Venice in their armory have this inscription, Happy is he who in time of peace thinks of war. He who often meditates on death will make the best preparation for it. Section 11. Meditate on the Day of Judgment. Feathers float upon the water but gold sinks in it. 
Just so light, feathery professors float in vanity. They mind not the day of judgment, but serious spirits sink deep into the meditation on it. Most men put far away from them the evil day, Amos 3.6. They report of the Italians that in a great thunder they used to ring the bells, that the sound of their bells may drown the noise of the thunder. Just so the devil delights men with the music of the world, that the noise should drown the noise of the day of judgment, and make them forget the sound of the last trumpet. Most men are guilty, therefore, they do not love to hear of the day of judgment. When Paul preached of judgment, Felix trembled. He had a bad conscience. Josephus tells us of Felix that he was a wicked man. The woman that lived with him, Drusilla, he enticed away from her husband. And when he heard of judgment, he fell a-trembling. Oh, I beseech you, meditate upon the last and solemn day. While others are thinking how they may get riches, let us bethink ourselves how we may fare on the day of judgment. Number one, meditation on the day of judgment would make us to evaluate all our actions. Christ will come with his fan and his sieve. Will this action of mine bide the test at that great day? Number two, meditation on the last day would make us labor to approve our hearts to God. The great judge of the world it is no matter what men think of us, but what is our judge's opinion of us. To him we must stand or fall. The galaxy, or Milky Way, as the astronomers call it, is a bright circle in the heavens containing many stars. But they are so small that they have no name, nor are they taken cognizance of by the astrologers. Give me permission to apply it. Possibly others may take no notice of us. We are so small as to have no name in the world, yet if we are true stars and can approve our hearts to God, we shall hold up our heads with boldness when we come to stand before our judge. Section 12. Meditate upon hell. Number 1. Meditate upon the pain of loss. Matthew 25.10 And the door was shut. To have Christ's face veiled over and a perpetual eclipse and midnight in the soul, to be cast out of God's presence in whose presence is fullness of joy. This accentuates and embitters the condition of the damned. It is like mingling gall with wormwood. Meditate upon the pain of sense. Psalm 9.17 The wicked shall be turned into hell. And here meditate of two things. Number one, the place of hell. And number two, the company. Number one, meditate on the place of hell. It is called a place of torment, Luke sixteen twenty eight. There are two things, especially in hell, to torment. Number one, the fire, Revelation 20, verse 15. It is called a lake of burning fire. Augustine, Peter Lombard, Gregory the Great say this fire of hell is a material fire, though they say it is infinitely hotter than any culinary fire, which is but painted fire compared to hell fire. I wish none of us may experience what kind of fire it is. I rather think the fire of hell is partly material and partly spiritual. The material fire is to work upon the body, the spiritual to torture the soul. This is the wrath of God, which is both fire and bellows. Who knows the power of your anger? Psalm 90 verse 11. But it may be objected, 
If there is material fire in hell, it will consume the bodies there. I answer, it shall burn without consuming as Moses' bush did, Exodus 3.2. The power of God silences all disputes. If God, by His infinite power, could make the fire not to consume the three Hebrew children, cannot He make the fire of hell burn and not consume? Augustine tells of a strange salt in Sicily, which, if it be put in the fire, swims. That God, who can make salt contrary to its nature, swim in the fire, can make the bodies of the damned not consume in the fire. Number two, the worm. Mark 1944, where the worm never dies. Homer in the Odyssey feigns that Titus's liver was gnawed by two vultures in hell. This never-dying worm Christ speaks of is the gnawing of a guilty conscience. Melanchthon calls it a hellish fury. They that will not hear conscience preaching shall feel conscience gnawing. And so great is the extremity of these two the fire which burns and the worm which bites, that there will follow gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 8 verse 12. The damned will gnash their teeth for horror and anguish. That must needs be sad fare. As Latimer says, where weeping is served for the first course and gnashing of teeth for the second. To endure this hell will be intolerable. To escape it will be impossible. Number two, meditate of the company in hell. The devil and his demons, Matthew 25, 41. Job complains he was a companion to owls, chapter 30, verse 29. What will it be to be a companion to devils? Consider, number one, their ghastly deformity. They make hell look blacker. Number two, their deadly antipathy. They are fired with rage against mankind. First, they become tempters, then tormentors. Meditate much on hell. Let us go into hell by contemplation, that we may not go into hell by condemnation. How restless and hopeless is the condition of the damned. The ancients feign of Endymion, that he got permission from Jupiter always to sleep. What would the damned in hell give for such a license? In their pains is neither intermission nor mitigation. Number one, the serious meditation on hell would make us fear sin as hell. Sin is hell's fuel. Sin, like Samson's foxes, carries devouring fire in its tail. Number two, meditation on hell would cause rejoicing in a child of God. The saint's fear of hell is like the two Mary's fear. Matthew 28, 8. They departed from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. A believer may fear to think of the place of torment, but rejoice to think he shall never come into that place. When a man stands upon a high rock, he trembles to look down into the sea, yet he rejoices that he is not there struggling with the waves. A child of God, when he thinks of hell, he rejoices with trembling. A prison is not made for the king's son to be put in. A great naturalist observes that nothing will so soon quench fire as salt and blood. But I am sure of this, the salt, brinish tears of repentance, and the blood of Christ will quench the fire of hell to a believer. Christ himself has felt the pains of hell for you, the Lamb of God being roasted in the fire of God's wrath. By this burnt offering, the Lord is now appeased towards his people. Oh, how may the godly rejoice! 
There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1 When the Son of God was in the furnace, Daniel 3.25, the fire did no hurt the three children. Just so, Christ being for a time in the fiery furnace of God's wrath, that fire can do a believer no hurt. The saints have the garment of Christ's righteousness upon them, and the fire of hell can never singe this garment. Section 13. Meditate upon heaven. From the Mount of Meditation, as from the Mount of Nebo, we may take a view and prospect of the land of promise. Christ has taken possession of heaven in the name of all believers. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Heaven must needs be a glorious city, which has God both for its builder and inhabitant. Heaven is the extract and quintessence of all blessedness. There the saints shall have all their holy hearts can desire. Augustine wished that he might have seen three things before he died. Rome in its glory, Paul in the pulpit, and Christ in the flesh. But the saints shall see a better sight. They shall see not Rome, but heaven in its glory. They shall see Paul not in the pulpit, but on the throne, and shall sit with him. They shall see Christ's flesh not veiled over with infirmities and disgraces, but in its spiritual embroidery, not a crucified, but a glorified body. They shall behold the king in his beauty. Isaiah thirty-three seventeen. What a glorious place this will be. In heaven, God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. Beauty to the eye, music to the ears, joy to the heart. And this he will be to the poorest saint, as well as the richest. O Christian, who are now at your hard labor, perhaps following the plow, you shall sit on the throne of glory. Revelation 3.21 Quintus Curtius writes of one who was digging in his garden and was suddenly made king, and a purple garment richly embroidered with gold put upon him. Just so shall it be done to the poorest believer. He shall be taken from his laboring work and set at the right hand of God, having the crown of righteousness upon his head. Meditate often on the Jerusalem above. Meditation, number one, on heaven would excite and quicken obedience. It would put spurs to our sluggish hearts and make us abound in the work of God, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. The weight of glory would not hinder us in our race, but cause us to run the faster. This weight would add wings to duty. Number two, meditation on heaven would make us strive after heart purity because only the pure in heart shall see God, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It is only a clear eye which can look on the bright, transparent object. Number three, meditation on heaven would be a pillar of support under our sufferings. Heaven will make amends for all. One hour in heaven will make us forget all our sorrows. The sun dries up the water, just so. One beam of God's glorious face will dry up all our tears. Section 14. Meditate on Eternity. Millions of years stand only for ciphers in eternity, 
and signify nothing. What an amazing word is eternity. Eternity to the godly is a day which has no sun setting. Eternity to the wicked is a night which has no sun rising. Eternity is a gulf which may swallow up all our thoughts. Meditate on that scripture, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Meditate upon eternal punishment. The bitter cup, the damned drink of, shall never pass away from them. The sinner and the furnace shall never be parted. God's vial of wrath will be always dropping upon a wicked man. When you have reckoned up so many myriads and millions of years, nay, ages, as have passed the bounds of all arithmetic, eternity is not yet begun. This word forever breaks the heart. If the tree falls hellward, there it lies to all eternity. Now is the time of God's long-suffering. After death will be the time of the sinner's long-suffering, when he shall suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude 7. Number 2. Meditate upon eternal life. The soul that is once landed at the heavenly shore is past all storms. The glorified soul shall be forever bathing itself in the rivers of pleasure. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 16, verse 11. This is what makes heaven to be heaven. We shall be forever with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Augustine says, Lord, I am content to suffer any pains and torments in this world, if I might see your face one day. But alas, were it only a day, then to be ejected from heaven, it would rather be an aggravation of misery. But this word, forever with the Lord, makes up the garland of glory. A state of eternity is a state of security. Number one, meditation on eternity would make us very serious in what we do. Zooks, being asked why he took so long to paint a picture, answered, I paint for eternity. The thoughts of an irreversible condition after this life would make us pray and live as for eternity. Number two, meditation on eternity would make us overlook present worldly things as flitting and fading. What is this present world to him who has eternity in his eye? It is but nothing. He who thinks of eternity will despise the passing pleasures of sin. Number three, meditation on eternity would be a means to keep us from envying the wicked's prosperity. Here the wicked may be dressed in purple and fine linen and live in luxury every day. But what is this compared to eternity? As long as there is such a thing as eternity, God has time enough to reckon with all his enemies. Section number 15. Meditate upon your experiences. The last subject of meditation is your experiences. Look over your receipts. Number one, has not God provided liberally for you and given you those spiritual mercies which he has denied to others who are better than you? Here is an experience, Genesis chapter 48, verse 15. The God who has fed me all my days. You never eat, but mercy carves for you. You never go to bed, but mercy draws the curtain and sets a guard of angels about you 
Whatever you have is out of the treasury of free grace. Here is an experience to meditate upon. Number two, has not God prevented many dangers? Has he not kept watch and ward about you? Number one, what temporal dangers has God screened off? Your neighbor's house on fire, but it has not kindled in your dwellings. Another is infected with the plague, but you are healthy. Behold the golden feathers of protection covering you. Number two, what spiritual dangers has God prevented? When others have been poisoned with error, you have been preserved. God has sounded a retreat to you. You have heard a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you have enlisted yourself and taken pay on the devil's side, yet God has plucked you as a brand out of the fire. Turned your heart, and now you espouse Christ's quarrel against sin. Behold, preventing grace. Here is an experience to meditate upon. Number three, has not God spared you a long time? Why is it that others are struck dead in the act of sin, as Ananias and Sapphira, and you are preserved as a monument of God's patience? Here is an experience. God has done more for you than for the fallen angels. He never granted them repentance, but he has waited for you year after year. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious. He has not only knocked at your heart in the ministry of the word, but he has waited at the door. How long has his spirit striven with you? Like an importunate suitor, who after many denials yet will not give over the suit. Methinks I see justice with a sword in its hand ready to strike, but mercy steps in for the sinner. Lord, have patience with him a while longer. Methinks I hear the angel say to God, as the king of Israel once said to the prophet Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 22, Shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Methinks I hear the angel say, Shall we take off the head of such a drunkard, swearer, blasphemer? But mercy seems to answer as the vine dresser, Luke chapter 13, verse 8. Let him alone this year. See if he will repent. Is not here an experience worth meditating upon? Mercy turns justice into a rainbow. The rainbow is a bow indeed, but has no arrow in it. That justice has been like the rainbow without an arrow. That it has not shot you to death. Here is a monument of patience to read over and meditate upon. Number four, has not God often come in with assisting grace? When he has bid you mortify such a lust, and you have said as Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, I have no might against this great army. Then God has come in with an auxiliary force, and his grace has been sufficient. When God has bid you pray for such a mercy, and you have found yourself very unfit, your heart was at first dead and flat. All of a sudden, you are carried above your own strength. Your tears drop, and your love flames. God has come in with assisting grace. If the heart burns in prayer, God has struck the fire. The Spirit has been turning your soul, and now you make sweet melody in prayer. Here is an experience to meditate upon. Number five, has not God vanquished Satan for you? When the devil is tempted to infidelity, to self-murder, 
when he would make you believe either that your graces were but a fiction or God's promise but a counterfeit bond, yet you have not been fooled by the tempter. It is God who has kept the garrison of your heart, else Satan's fiery darts would have entered. Here is an experience to meditate on. Number six, have you not had many signal deliverances? When you have been even at the gates of death, God has miraculously recovered you and renewed your strength as the eagle. May not you write that writing which Hezekiah did, Isaiah chapter 38, verse 6, the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. You thought the sun of your life was quite setting, but God made this sun turn back many degrees. Here is an experience for meditation to feed upon. When you have been imprisoned by sin, your foot taken in the snare, and the Lord has broken the snare, nay, has made those to break it, who were the instruments of laying it. Behold an experience to meditate on. Oh, let us often revolve in mind our experiences. You who have rare receipts of mercy, be often by meditation looking over your receipts. Number one, meditation on our experiences would raise us to thankfulness. Considering that God has set a hedge of providence about us, He has strewed our way with roses. This would make us take the harp and violin and praise the Lord. First Chronicles 16.4 And not only praise, but record our blessings. The meditating Christian keeps a register or chronicle of God's mercies that their memory does not decay. God would have the manna kept in the ark many hundred years that the remembrance of that miracle might be preserved. A meditating soul takes care that the spiritual manna of an experience be kept safe. Number two, meditation on our experiences would engage our hearts to God in obedience. Mercy would be a needle to sow us to Him. We would cry out as Bernard, I have, Lord, two mites, a soul and a body, and I give them both to you. Number three, Meditation on our experiences would serve to convince us that God is no hard master. We might bring in our experience as a sufficient confutation of that slander. When we have been falling, has not God taken us by the hand? When I said my foot is slipping, your love, O Lord, supported me. Psalm ninety-four, eighteen. How often has God supported our head and heart? When we have been fainting, and is he a hard master? Is there any master besides God who will wait upon his servants? Christians, summon in your experience. What spiritual enjoyments have you had? What inward serenity and peace, which neither the world can give nor death take away? A Christian's own experiences may plead for God against those who desire to censure his ways rather than to try them, and to cavil at them rather than to walk in them. Number four, meditation on our experiences would make us communicative to others. We would be willing to tell our children and acquaintances what God has done for our souls. At such a time, we were brought low, and God raised us. At such a time, in desertion, and God brought a promise to remembrance, which dropped in comfort. Meditation on God's gracious dealings with us would make us transmit and propagate our experience to others. 
that the mercies of God shown to us may bear a plentiful crop of praise when we are dead and gone.